the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This week's The Interview is brought to you by AndrewandTodd.com. AndrewandTodd.com are the world's best lenders for real estate. They are with Sierra Pacific Mortgage. You can call them at 888-1172. 888-1172. And please do, no matter what your lending needs are, andrewandtodd.com. And now welcome to this new edition of The Interview with Hugh Hewitt. So pleased now to welcome former Secretary of State John Kerry to the program. Secretary Kerry, welcome. Every day is extra is a fine read. I love memoirs. I'm a sucker for memoirs, but this one is very good. Welcome and thank you for joining us. Well, thank you, Hugh, and I apologize for being a moment late. I was trying to dial in, and the number wouldn't work, but I finally got it. Well, I'm glad you're here. I'm going to save the last 10 minutes for Iran, but I want to begin. One of the many revelations, many surprises in this, I did not know on the 4th of July weekend of 13, when the government of Mr. Morsi was falling apart in Egypt, that your wife had a serious health episode. That was very surprising. How is her recovery going? She's doing great. Thank you very much. She, she's a, a fighter, and she came back from it very well, but she did. She had a, she had a uh, bad seizure, what they call a grand mal seizure. It's the only one ever, and we learned a lot. I learned a lot about the, that challenge that apparently uh, in, in, in 50% of all seizures, they you can never tell you why it happened. And you may never have it again. It's just amazing. Yeah, idiomatic syncope. Had it in my family. And so when I read that, I was fascinated. And you're in the middle of, of following and sort of overseeing our response to the Army takeout of Morsi. It doesn't. It brought home the fact that diplomats have lives. <laughs> they do. Occasionally. That's yeah. for sure. I also like the story about Tom Hanks breaking your nose. I imagine you've told that a few times. Uh, you know, I've only told it in the last few days. I never really revealed that, actually, until the last couple of days with the book. But, yes, we were in a hockey game out at Christmas time in uh, Ketchum, Idaho, and he fell in front of me, and I tried to leap over him, and he started to get up before I'd leaped, cleared him and hit the back of my legs, and legs went up and face went down, plant, boom. Yeah, there are not many people whom uh, Big's star has broken their nose or uh, saving Private Ryan. Let me go to well, a serious... Well, it was a real Forrest Gump moment, I'll tell you that. <laughs> it is funny as hell. But I want to start on a serious thing. Anne Smettinghoff, page 418. Never yeah. heard of her before. I salute you for including her. Tell the people about her. Well, Anne Smettinghoff was this brilliant young woman that I met when I went to Afghanistan in Kabul. And she was my control officer. She, she uh, shaped my whole trip. She introduced me to these remarkable 10 Afghan women who were running their businesses, which is quite extraordinary in Afghanistan, um, among other things. And, and she was just so full of life and energetic and happy and, and thrilled to be doing something that she thought was important. And literally just weeks after I'd, I'd met her there, she was killed when she was trying to deliver books to a school with other people and a suicide vest went off near them. Uh, and, and it's just a terrible, terrible story. And uh, people with her were killed and, and injured very, very badly. And um, Her name is now up on the wall in the first floor of the State Department where people who have lost their lives in the, in the course of duty are honored. Um, she was a wonderful family. A sister who's also in uh, foreign service. I mean, it's just quite an amazing story. These unsung heroes that most Americans never hear about who believe in America, they believe in helping other countries, they believe in service, uh, and they literally lay their lives down uh, in, in service to country. You know, I put, I put the book down at that point because it comes around again and again when you're not expecting it. I went out to interview your successor at State, Mike Pompeo, when he was at the CIA, and I saw the wall with the stars. My college roommate, good friend, you know him, Mark Guerin, would lose people when he was running the Peace Corps. Yeah. And we, don't, we, we do honor the men and women of the military, and rightly so, when they fall, but we don't 
we don't often hear about Ann Smettinghoff and their counterparts. No, we don't. And, and uh, that's why every year we have a day of honor in the State Department. And, you know, it doesn't matter who the secretary is. We take time out to honor those people. And, of course, the stars that are on the wall in, in, uh, at the CIA, I mean, there are unsung heroes whose names are never public. And um, it's just it's an extraordinary, I think it's a particularly American trait, to be honest with you. I think there's something about our country and about people who serve that they're willing to uh, take great risks in order to advance our interests. Well, it's a, it, I'm just very glad you included it. I salute you for that. Your long career means there are many coincidences. For me, it's the fact that my first campaign as a freshman at Harvard was working on Paul Cronin's ill-fated 1974 campaign when he lost to young Paul Zongas, whom you would replace in the Senate. Uh, I find that Bob Mueller ran the BCCI investigation on page 187, and Paul Manafort pops up with Roger Stone as Marcos lobbyist. I mean... There are so many names that show up in your long and very storied career that are now back on the front pages. It's quite amazing. I mean, that really is coincidence and quite remarkable. But, yes, I mean, they've been around a long time, Paul Manafort and Roger Stone. They were involved in a lot of different things. That was in the course of the Philippines, uh, Cory Aquino, and and, uh, the, the changes that took place, which Ronald Reagan, by the way, deserves credit for having pulled the plug on that. And Paul Laxalt, I remember, was then the senator. And he went over and delivered the message to Marcos, um, which the Reagan administration uh, decided needed to be sent based on that election. Well, I always also write down the most surprising thing I find in every memoir. And I've read every page of your book, uh, Senator, uh, Secretary. I did not expect to find Doug Coe on page 171. I knew Doug, and I know Marty Sherman well. I did not expect to see you expounding on John Paul the Great's theory of suffering. I really didn't. Uh, That was unknown to me. How can you run for president and not have people know that you're that serious about theology and Bible study? Well, I think just because uh, if you're really serious about it, you don't exploit it, and and you don't sort of push it out there at people, number one. And number two, uh, you know, campaigns are difficult places for legitimate conversation, I'm afraid. It's just part of what's happened in American politics, that it's hard to have those conversations. But Doug Coe became a very good friend. He, uh, We had many a conversation about faith and, and belief, and um, I think we agreed on, on a lot of things in that context. Uh, it, so I do. I write about my my journey of faith, if you will, when I began uh, with, like many people, uh, a certain agnosticism that came out of the war and came out of uh, probably just the age I was, and then um, sort of a rekindling of it and, and finding it a very, you know, the prayer breakfasts in the, in the Senate are very, again, Many people don't know about that, but every Wednesday there's prayer breakfast in the Senate. People gather, and you'll find uh, improbable folks there, and, and many people sharing stories that are, uh, you know, very helpful in helping people sort through different phases of their life and different thoughts. So it's very yes, well crafted. On it. Very well crafted. Now, given that we're both Catholic, I just have to ask you, Francis and the handling of these scandals, Donald Whirl flying off to resign, what is your your advice to the Pope about getting out of this vortex, this black swan moment for the church? Well, I don't know if it's my place to give advice to His Holiness, but uh, I I had the privilege of meeting with... uh, Pope Francis several times, and uh, I find him to be intriguing and, and, and an important teacher in the scope of things. But I think he, the Church has got to be open. The Church has got to just deal with this frontally. Uh, it's the only way to, uh, you know, purge this, this, this evil, this thing that has uh, clouded the mission of the Church itself, and I think it's absolutely essential uh, for them to be uh, to tackle it, to tackle it openly, forthrightly, uh, to deal with it, and and to make it clear to the world, uh, not just parishioners, but to the world, that uh, it's simply not acceptable, and 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 have got to move authoritatively to a new place. 
So I'm back, Mr. Secretary. Sorry about that. My studio generator blew up. I think maybe Hurricane Florence is beginning to take a toll on us here. But I, I wanted to – you had started to talk about being impressed with Pope Francis. Do you think well, he could have handled this better? That the, yeah, the way they've got to deal with it, and I said this, was they've just got to be as open, as accountable, forthright, and firm as possible. They have got to make it clear to the world, not just to parishioners, that uh, uh, this is over, that it's going to end because people are, are really disturbed by the dribble and the, the kind of slow walking and, and constant uh, revelations. It's got to end. Now, uh, Secretary Kerry, one of the great things you describe is the Billy Bolger St. Patrick's Day breakfast. And, of course, I heard about yeah. this for years, but I'm on the other team, right? I'm working for Cronin. I'm not working for Zongas in, in 74. I'm working for Ford in 76. Not for Carter. So I never got to go to this. Tell people about that. That's one of those great things about American politics. Well, I wish you'd been able to go. I mean, it's, it really was uh, under Billy Bolger's leadership, tutelage. It was one of the great events of politics. And there would, there would be this unbelievable gathering of the faithful at, uh, in, in what, what, what uh, one of the columnists in, uh, in the uh, Boston Herald called Halitosis Hall and it was uh, – every St. Patrick's Day, this breakfast took place, but it was a roast, basically, but a live roast, not contrived. People would come in, and Billy Bulger's wit was just stunning, very quick, acerbic, uh, unbelievably appropriate. And he would shred people, and he had his <laughs> own microphone, and you'd stand up there, and no matter what you tried to do or how you did it, Billy always won. I mean, it was home court for him. But every politician, anybody who was running that year, really needed to show up. If you didn't show up, uh, it was a bad moment. And, you know, I think President George Herbert Walker Bush, I think Ronald Reagan came in by telephone. I mean, there were just, it was enormously uh, watched and had impact, you know, whether you could stand up there and take it and how you took it. So Governor Weld and I were teeing off that year, and we just had a very funny year. I'd, I had a, a fire hydrant that was planted smack dab right in the middle of the front of our house. And yeah. no other fire hydrant on our block was right in front of the house. They were all on the corner. So it took up a parking place, and we wanted to use the parking place uh, and facilitate parking for people coming in and a uh, busy place, et cetera. So we got permission from the city to move it. And when the newspapers learned that this hydrant was being moved, and we were paying for it, by the way. The city was not paying for it. And um, it just became a cause celeb. So the fire hydrant was on the front page of the newspaper and so forth. So my wife came to this breakfast with me, and she walked in and carrying a plastic fire hydrant under her arm. And the place went crazy. And, and she was new to Massachusetts. And I turned to her and I said, well, Teresa... You know, uh, you know, how do you like Massachusetts? And Teresa said, I love it. How much is it? <laughs> it was a great line. And I, I wondered when I read that, if Teresa Hines Carey, your wife, has uh, sympathy for Melania because of the accent, because of the fact that she takes barbs from the press, because she comes from some education and wealth. Does, does she have some empathy for Melania? I, I'm sure she does. I haven't really asked her specifically but I know she always felt uh, that the press would focus on the wrong things uh, in, in terms of personality and things like that. But, look, she's fine about it. She understands that politics is not beanbag, and uh, she's okay with it. Now, let me talk about politics when it is coming together. At the funeral for your longtime colleague, John McCain, um, it was interesting to see you, everybody there, and then W., uh, eulogizing him, but you detail in Every Day is Extra their collision in South Carolina in 2000. It was brutal. It was tough. It was angry. As you say, Carl Rove is smart. It was nasty. And yet they came, the W came to honor McCain. I, is that gone from American politics where eventually you lay down the swords and you come back together and you salute each other? I hope to God it's not gone because it's absolutely essential to American democracy. It's one of the great traits of our system you know i mean george bush and i squared off obviously we had a we had a fun thing we did at the alfalfa club last year where we both were standing opposite each other for a, a public part of the evening 
and uh, and it worked. And people appreciated it. Uh, I think it's important. John McCain had a wonderful capacity for forgiveness. Uh, he and I forged a friendship and a partnership because we worked together on the issue of POW MIA. We we put together the the strongest, most accountable system working with the military and the Bush administration of any country in history to account for its missing or its potential prisoners. And, uh, you know, uh, I think if, if, I mean, that's essential to democracy, that you find the capacity to compromise and that you can come together no matter your party, no matter your beliefs. And John McCain's, the tribute to him that day in the cathedral was a real recognition of that. And I, and frankly, you know, I thought it was quite significant that you had President Clinton, you had President George W. Bush, and you had uh, President Obama there, and two of them speaking. It was quite remarkable. Now, you remarked in the book at length about, in the chapter on Syria, the open wound chapter, that John McCain and Lindsey Graham disappointed you, that they knew you had a, quote, uphill battle internally inside the administration to strike it aside, and they let you down. Did they ever explain, did they ever regret not March? I asked this during the presidential debates of Marco Rubio. Did the Senate and the, the House fail the country by failing to support the president? Now, I think the president ought to struck Syria anyway. It appears to me you thought so as well, correct? I did. I believe that. That's correct. But, but I think in, in, in a context, I mean, I thought that as Assad continued to violate ceasefires and continued to drop barrel bombs and continued to use gas, it was critical for all of us to hold him accountable to that. Um, I, but I remember, though, we, we did have, as a consequence of the threat of the bombing that the president made, we got all of the declared chemical weapons out. 1,300 tons of chemical weapons were taken out in the middle of a conflict, and the OPCW that actually affected that that uh, collection of the weapons and getting them out and destroying them won the Nobel Peace Prize. So it wasn't insignificant what happened as a result of the threat of the bombing, but there was a perception the president had backed off. The president asked Congress for, for to join in the effort, and, um, you know, the disappointment was obviously Congress was clearly not going to do that. Congress did not move fast as we thought they would, nor were they prepared to actually vote for it. Um, I, I hope that uh, both Lindsay and John would sort of understand the degree to which we were trying to make it happen. But, um, you know, I think they were rightfully very disturbed by the killing and, and, and chaos of Syria, and the whole international community failed to do what was necessary. Uh, and now some half a million people have been killed in that conflict, and it's still a mess. And we're on the verge of a Aleppo-like disaster in Idlib. Would you recommend, if chemical weapons are used, that President Trump strike again? James Mattis seemed to indicate it would be the most uh, devastating response yet. Would you support that? I would support. Uh, I supported President Trump twice in his response to the use of chemical weapons. I would support it providing, as I said previously, that there's the diplomacy to back up that attack so that we uh, that we use the attack as leverage and as an ongoing policy to try to get the political settlement that's so critical and people need to understand there won't be a political settlement in Syria without dealing with Iran and Russia because they're there and, and in much greater numbers and greater force than we are. Again, I want to spend the last 10 minutes on Iran, but before we get there, back to the, the deal with, with Syria and Russia. Did Putin and Lavrov lie to you then, or did they just, or did Assad lie to them about what he had? No, Assad lied about what he had. I, I, I think the Russians actually were cooperative in the effort to get the chemical weapons out. I mean, Lavrov called me. I was in London at a press conference. I said, as I was asked, is there anything Assad could do to prevent being bombed, and I said, yeah, he could get all of his chemical weapons out of there within a week. And Lavrov called me to follow up on that, and within five days we had an agreement. The, tri the hard part was getting in the middle of a war into the country sufficiently to inspect all the sites. I think uh, the OPCW did the best job possible given the nature of the conflict. We knew that Assad had kept some, because we had a discrepancy between what was declared and what we estimated he had. So we went right back to the United Nations to try to get additional 
sanctions and additional cooperation. We actually then ran into some slow walking by the Russians, regrettably, uh, and that complicated getting the further accounting that was necessary. All right. Now, before I move to the 2004 campaign, I just have to say sometimes a memoir has a dog that doesn't bark. In Every Day is Extra, I'm reading very closely, very closely, and I note that the Kissinger of the Obama years, Ben Rhodes, is in here exactly once. One time he's mentioned in here in regard to the secret mission to Cuba. What was your assessment of Mr. Rhodes's role in the administration? Well, he played a very important role. Uh, he He was very very trusted by President Obama. He was a very thoughtful, uh, creative guy who was the principal speechwriter for the president, but also somebody who was thoughtful about policy and had his points of views. And the president respected that. So he played an important role. Um, when I became Secretary of State in my first conversations with President Obama, um, as we talked about the agenda and the things we would work on, the president made it clear to me that he already had an initiative that had been that had begun. That he was uh, that uh, Ben Rhodes was leading this effort uh, with respect to Cuba, and you know I respected that. I mean that was fine. We worked, uh, we cooperated, and as the thing came together, the State Department became more and more involved. We we sort of took it over in terms of negotiating the actual uh, diplomatic components of of uh, restarting our relationship. But I think it was an effective process, and, and Ben Rhodes deserves credit for what he did. So I shouldn't read much into the fact that there's a lot of Wendy Sherman in Every Day is Extra. There's a lot of a lot of people in here, but there isn't much of Ben Rhodes. Well, there's just problem, one reference. You know, the problem, you to be honest with you, the problem is there are, uh, there are some parts of my life, I mean, there's some things that just aren't written about in there. I mean, I'll give you an example. I... I, I negotiated when I was a senator for the uh, tribunal that held Pol Pot and the Cambodian, the, you know, the, 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 the responsible for the terrible killings of the killing fields in Cambodia. And it was stuck, and I was in Cambodia and negotiated for the U.N. and with the U.N., with Kofi Annan and others, to make that happen. I don't think I even talk about it there. Because, no, you don't. Because don't. it's just too... There's too much. And, and North and Korea was, is not in here either. North Korea is well, barely it mentioned. Is, it's in there. We talk about. I talk about it in the context of how, how complicated and difficult it was because we didn't have the kind of full measure of sanctions necessary, which we were trying to get. And I went to China several times. I talk about that and how we got the Chinese to lift, to increase the sanctions uh, on two occasions. But... We knew that we needed still more sanctions, and the President Obama gave President uh, Trump the advice that that was going to be his central focus, that he needed to raise the sanctions even more, which President Trump did and deserves credit for. And, and finally, um, the dynamic shifted. But we tried very hard to get uh, back-channel efforts going. We reached out. We had one meeting that was going to be set, and then it pulled apart. And there were complications with China at the time uh, between China and North Korea. I mean, remember that Kim Jong-un hadn't even made one trip to China at that point in time. So that dynamic finally ripened, uh, but it just it, it, it got some attention in the book, but it wasn't something that uh, had moved far enough and fast enough to merit uh, being in there in a significant way. Well, I tell you, I, I understand that it's a great, uh, detailed life recall, but you can't put everything in. I want to go to the politics again. I'm safe. You tell me when you're 10 minutes out from having to go because I want to do Iran for 10 minutes. But no, I'm I good. I'm fine. Oh, great. Let's go I'm to the 2004 good. campaign. Uh, you have a big comeback. People forget you came back from cancer, uh, not just from behind and not just down in money, but you came back from cancer to beat Howard Dean. But you don't write an extra to every day is extra. What was your reaction to the Dean scream when you heard it? I was surprised. I mean, obviously, I was a little bit shocked and surprised by it. Um, uh, but I was much more focused on the positive side of what we had accomplished that night and and really started immediately to look ahead to New Hampshire. You have, you have no idea how quickly one thing drops behind you and the next is there because one week later, New Hampshire was going to take place. And we had to get back there right away. And we, we left in the dead of night and arrived very early in the morning. 
So when you heard him uh, let loose with that litany of states and the Dean scream, you didn't say to yourself, done, baked, finished, I'm it? Uh, I, I didn't quite say that, no, because uh, things are never that way in politics. Every day is an eternity, to be honest with you. Um, but I, I, I had an inkling that it was going to be costly and it might have some meaning over the course of the next days. Uh, but no, you don't count your chickens before the eggs hatch. All right, let's turn to the pick of John Edwards. You say when you, and this is, by the way, a piece of every day is extra that is going to be read by every candidate who ever gets nominated about picking a vice president. You need a Mr. August, a Mr. October, and a Mr. January. My first question is, how could your vetters have missed so much about John Edwards? Well, I, you know, I guess because the major part of his private life at that point in time wasn't taking place. Uh, and I think that was a, a subsequent uh, next campaign episode. Uh, the vetting was pretty intense and pretty deep, and I, I think they, uh, they caught the relevant things at that point in time in our lives. But you, could, you couldn't forecast from those problems that which was going to come later? No, Let me no, ask no. There, there was no way to forecast with any specificity that. There were questions that I raised, and I raised them in the book, and I talk about them. I was pretty frank and honest about them. But, no, there was no way to tell that, and I think uh, uh, I'm pretty candid about what disappointed me in the course of the campaign. Oh, you are. You're right. Uh, his speech on the night when you conceded was, quote, a sour coda to his troubled performance as the vice presidential candidate. That's on page 328 for people who want to find it. I wonder if your advice would be what Nixon's advice was, don't hurt yourself. Uh, and I guess pick a serving governor from a swing state like Mike Pence. It just seems to me so obvious for presidential nominees. Am I wrong? Uh, I think in today's world, uh, there's more to it than that. Uh, I, I, I think you look at what President uh, Obama had with with Vice President Biden, I think that's, you know, a terrific relationship. Uh, it had a lot of qualities that it brought together. The experience that uh, that uh, Joe Biden had in his years in the Senate, the relationships that he had, his own campaigning style and other things, I think it was obviously a terrific choice. And I think that, uh, you know, there were – it was a little more complicated my year – uh, for a lot of different reasons, uh, and I write about them in the book. I'm pretty clear about the, you know, who performed well in what ways, in what places, and where we thought the lift would come to the campaign. Uh, we had a great rollout. I mean, I think you have to acknowledge that the, 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 the you know, Mr. August component of it worked fairly effectively. Uh, but the... Uh, the latter part of the campaign, as I write in the book, uh, presented some challenges. Well, he began to he began to campaign for president in 2008. It's pretty clear. You call it the last rope line campaign. I began to reflect, made some notes on this. I think you're right. I think that social media combined with the amplification of everything, like the amplification of the photo of you and Dianne Feinstein and Senator Kennedy, makes it very hard to be anything other than totally scripted. If you run for president again, are you going to have to be aware of every minute of every day? Well, first of all, I'm not, you know, that's not my focus, and that's not what uh, this is about. And I haven't thought about what you'd have to do or how you do it in that context uh, in a current campaign. I think I, I say this again and again. I think everybody's focus right now ought to be, and I hope is, on the elections that take place in two months. You, I mean, that's. That's the moment for the country to have a course correction if they're concerned about what's happening. And, and I think all our energy ought to go into speculating about that. But I do think, in answer to your question, politics has changed. There's no question about it. Social media has had a profound, enormous impact. I mean, we have, I've seen some data that suggests that uh, 80% of people's news uh, comes from Facebook. Uh, I mean, it's just a whole new world we're living in in terms of how people communicate and what they get. And certainly, you know, President Trump has understood that. I think he's excessive in the way in which he does it. I don't think he's serving himself well in the way he does it. But he obviously understood it and tapped into it and used it uh, effectively. 
And no campaign will ever be the same now as long as those platforms are what they are today. Nor will the funding of campaigns be the same because of what has happened. But it also, and I think this is important for everybody to think about, it also diminishes our politics. It, it has made it more trivial, more complicated, harder to communicate. It's much harder for people in public life to build consensus around facts because it's much harder now to determine the facts. Uh, and it shouldn't be. I mean, facts are facts. But we have alternative facts. We have, uh, you know, a very clear shredding of truth in, 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 in you know, many, many different ways. And, and boy, does that make it, if you're trying to, you know, if two plus two doesn't make four anymore, we got a problem when it comes to deciding how we're going to build America, how we're going to do things. And we have epistemic closure when Secretary Clinton was my guest talking about her book, What Happened. We agreed on one thing completely, which is Franklin Ford's book, uh, World Without Mind, about the rise of social media and the closing down of access to people of information is deadly to a democracy. Have you read Ford's book yet, World Without Mind? I have not, but I'm going to because you just mentioned it. I'm, I, I need to. Well, you, you do write at length about other broken institutions. You think the Senate is broken. Well, clearly it's broken. I mean, look at what John McCain called for in terms of regular order. Regular order is following the rules of the Senate and doing the things that the Senate is supposed to do. But we don't even pass budgets that way anymore. Uh, you know, we, we, we have a, a continuing resolution, and everything gets done in a room, uh, you know, out of sight, late at night, last-minute agreements. Uh, that's not the way it's supposed to work. Uh, there is, there's, uh, I mean, just the Merrick Garland thing is an example of the way it's not supposed to work. But beyond that, uh, there are countless examples of the ways in which the Senate is gridlocked and is not working properly. Um, I, I think this most recent hearing, I mean, and I say this not being partisan about Kavanaugh. I mean, like him or not like him or want him or not want him, we ought to have a process for having hearings and doing things that follows the regular order, not jamming things through you know, in this sort of rushed and uh, out-of-regular-order way. And I, I really think that everybody in the Senate loses for that. It's not a partisan issue. The rules of the Senate have not changed that much. I mean, there are a couple of tweaks, obviously, on the nominating process and the 51 votes here and there. But by and large, the rules remain the same about how you bring amendments, how you do legislation, the recognition of people and the time you get to speak and all those kinds of things. What has changed is the approach of people, people, and people themselves have changed. And I think uh, what our founding fathers intended, uh, you know, during when I first came in the 1980s, um, people worked together. You weren't, you weren't chastised by your caucus for reaching across the aisle and trying to form a coalition and be bipartisan and make things happen. But bipartisanship has uh, fallen by the wayside to a large measure, and it's costing our country. Uh, you have kind words for your then-leader, Harry Reid, and we disagree on his, con uh, on, on his effectiveness, but he did kill the filibuster. Was that a mistake in retrospect? Uh, because, you know, Kavanaugh couldn't get 60 votes, but he's going to get 54. Yeah, he is, and, and I, I do think that that did not serve the institution in the long run. I thought that, you know, the problem with any decision that any leader makes, uh, whether it's the Republican leader or the Democrat leader, that if you change those kinds of things, uh, something else can get changed, and it begins to eat away at, the, at, at those things that made the Senate so different and so important to the country. It always was meant to be the place... To, to think, the place to slow things down. That's why they have six-year terms, and that's why there was this uh, right of, of unlimited debate. And, uh, you know, uh, you can't abuse it, but on the other hand, uh, uh, you know, it is critical sometimes to getting the right outcome. Now, you have some uh, harsh words for my friend Tom Cotton on page 505 because of the letter. We're transitioning now to the substance of your Secretary of State period. You have harsh words for Tom, uh, Senator Cotton, on page 505. Uh, why so critical of his letter to the Mullahs? Because it is unheard of. Never before in Senate history 
has a senator put a group of people together to write to another country's leader to undermine the negotiations of the existing uh, administration, which historically has the right to negotiate as the executive department of our, of our, uh, you know, three branches of government. And then the Senate has a right to engage one way or the other. There are plenty of things they could have and should have done. But to write and interfere in the middle of a negotiation uh, in that overt way and suggest that you cannot trust the people you're negotiating with, who are your fellow, who are your administration, uh, is just unheard of. Now, Secretary Kerry, sincere question. How is what Senator Cotton did different from the trip that you detail that you and Tom Harkin took to Nicaragua in April of 1985? Because we didn't negotiate anything. We didn't interfere in anything. We did what United States senators always do, Republican and Democrat alike. John McCain would constantly be on a—I mean, this is how the three amigos came to exist. You know, Kelly Ayotte and and, uh, Lindsey Graham and John McCain would be on an airplane and fly to— to a country, to, to Ukraine, to uh, Europe for a security conference, whatever, and they'd meet with everybody, and they'd talk to the presidents of the country, and they'd learn about what was happening. It's exactly what I did with Tom Hart. We made a Senate trip, a fact-finding mission, and in the course of that, at the end of it, uh, the president of the country gave us a letter to give to the president of the United States. All we did was deliver the letter. Uh, I mean, we didn't negotiate anything. We weren't involved in anything outside the norm. But it became a big deal because uh, the leader of the country, Daniel Ortega, offered a peace plan. And it was very clear to me that uh, the administration was more interested in supporting the Contras and and having an alternative policy, which ultimately got them into a lot of trouble. I mean, look at what happened with Iran-Contra and the entire uh, scandal around it. Uh, That could have been avoided had people, you know, proceeded in a different way. So it was unfortunate, but we did we did what senators and congressmen do every single day, uh, and and um, you know as I write in the book, we kind of got a brushback pitch thrown at us. Yes, you uh, did because people didn't like it. Well, my my last question: If Cotton had gone to meet with uh, uh, Shari- uh, Javad uh, Sharif and had sat down with him and said what you said to Ortega, which he had is- a right, he had a right to do that. He had every right in the world to have a delegation go and, and, and sit and have a conversation, sure. But not to that's write a letter. Different, that's very different from a public letter warning the people on the other side of the negotiation that they shouldn't be negotiating with the administration. I mean, uh, or they can't trust the administration because the Congress is going to turn around and whack it or something. If he'd wanted to just stand up in the Senate and say that, that's his, that's his prerogative. But to enlist uh, a whole bunch of senators to write a letter to the to undermine uh, a negotiation is unheard of. All right, interesting, interesting topic. I want to move to Iran, but the, the first step is Syria. Just one of my notes. You point out you spent a lot of time with Assad. Now, you didn't know it at the time. I'm not faulting you for that. But that's like saying, in retrospect, I spent a lot of time with Hitler. Did you ever get the sense he's a genocidal maniac? I mean, a war criminal on par with, with Pol Pot and Hitler? No, not at that point in time. In fact, most people who had met with him, Republicans and Democrats alike, uh, because he was then, you know, the new leader of Syria and untested, and nobody really knew much about him. But uh, he was uh, he was talking about reforming his country. He was talking about moving in a very different uh, direction. He wanted to try to make a deal to have uh, oil pipe from Iraq. He wanted to have health care technology. Uh, he and his wife were talking about opening up to Western business, and they were moving in a different direction. Uh, and, uh, you know, all, I mean, again, we had meetings to explore uh, where Syria was going and where the region was going and what peace might look like with Israel and so forth. Um, and then when the Arab Spring came, he made, it's very interesting, because Foreign Minister Lavrov and Putin both told me they thought he had made some really lousy decisions and that he made mistakes. And, and they backed him, obviously, because of other strategic interests, but they were not particularly uh, happy with some of his choices. But the point is that when the Arab Spring took place, 
Assad uh, responded to these young people who were demonstrating for jobs and for education and for an opportunity by sending his thugs out to, to, to beat them up. And the parents then were really disturbed by that. They joined in the protest, and Assad sent thugs out with bullets. And that was the beginning of the civil strife, the uprising in Syria. It was Assad's gross miscalculation and perhaps the demonstration of who the real Assad was. I'm very blunt in the book. Yes, uh, I you make are. it very clear. He is a war criminal. He, is, he, has, he has departed from all, uh, any kind of uh, uh, redeeming notion that uh, there's an element of reform or anything else in him. And I think the Russians and the Iranians and their support of Assad have crossed a line because they have supported this man in his war criminal activities. So I think the international community, regrettably, has failed as a whole to hold him accountable and to take advantage of, uh, of, of uh, opportunities to try to leverage uh, a better outcome in Syria. Ultimately, regrettably, because uh, Russia made the decision to go in. And by the way, Russia's presence in Syria is not new. It's not because of the Obama administration. Russia's been there for years, 30 years, 40 years. Russia built the, Syri the Syrian uh, air defense system. And Russia has had people manning some of those facilities for decades now. So the Russian presence grew, but it's not new in Syria. And the truth is that the only way to have a political resolution now that will end the violence and provide some kind of a new governance that can include the opposition is through diplomatic process. And the only way to get there is going to take Russia and Iran to be at the table. Now, ironically, Hugh, both of those countries supported a diplomatic structure for a resolution of the war in Syria, which included an election run by the international community, not by Assad, in which the entire diaspora of all the refugees in Turkey and Jordan and around the world would be allowed to vote. And they supported the idea that that was the framework for a new Syria, which was united, democratic, uh, unified, with, with all minorities being able to be represented and protected. That was embraced in a U.N. resolution, 2254, and both uh, the Russians and the Chinese voted for it, supported it at the Security Council, and Iran supported that. So there is a framework for peace. The problem has been... Uh, getting the dynamic in place where you actually hold Assad accountable to a ceasefire and you hold al-Nusra, which is al-Qaeda, uh, accountable to a ceasefire and you kind of create a structure where you can move forward. Let, let's move to Iran. Every day is extra is full of detail about the JCPOA. And if I'm correct, did you spend more time talking in person on the phone with uh, Javad Zarif than any other foreign minister? Maybe Lavrov, but was he your number one interlocutor? No, I'm not sure. You know, I never did a tally of the numbers, but I spent a lot of time with my European colleagues also at NATO in many other meetings. Uh, we spent a lot of time on Syria and the International Syria Support Group with our other colleagues. I mean, certainly Javad was up there, but it, we, I spent a lot of time with France, Germany, Britain, uh, China, Russia. Uh, those were the principal interlocutors, and I've never divided it up. Okay. Uh, it's it's been reported you've met with him a couple of times at least since uh, leaving office as well. Yes, so I you have. Still, That's uh, accurate. Is it a half dozen times? A dozen times? No, 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 no. I've met with him at a at a conference in Norway. I think I saw him in a conference in Munich and uh, at the World Economic Forum. So I've probably seen him three or four times. Are you trying to coach him through the Trump administration's rejection of the JCPOA? No, that's not my job, and, and my coaching him would not, you know, that's, that's not how it works. What I, what I have done is tried to elicit from him what Iran might be willing to do in order to change the dynamic of the Middle East for the better. You know, how does one resolve Yemen? What do you do to try to get peace in Syria? Uh, I mean, those are the things that uh, really are preoccupying, because those are the impediments to um, 
to people, to Iran's ability to convince people that it, it's ready to embrace something different. I mean, I, and I've been very blunt to to uh, uh, to uh, Foreign Minister Zarif and told him, look, you guys need to recognize that the world does not appreciate what's happening with missiles, what's happening with Hezbollah, what's happening with Yemen. You're supporting, uh, you know, an ongoing struggle there. They say they're prepared to negotiate and to resolve these issues. But um, the administration's taken a very different tack. I don't, I don't know, as I talk to you today, if there's been any uh, dialogue or sit-down. I don't think there has which would open up any kind of diplomatic channel. And it appears right now as if the administration is hell-bent for leather, determined to pursue a regime change uh, strategy to bring the economy down and, and try to isolate further. And, and I would simply caution that the, the United States uh, historically has not had a great record in regime change strategies, number one, and number two, uh, that makes it very difficult, if not impossible, for any Iranian leader to sit down and negotiate anything uh, because they're not going to do it in a capitulatory uh, you know, situation. It's just not well, that makes happen. sense. So part of extra to every day that is extra, which is useful training for diplomats, is you, you can't say you made people do things. They have to say they agreed to things. I get all that, but does Zarif at least acknowledge to you they're running arms through Oman to the Houthis that are becoming missiles that land in, in the UAE and Saudi Arabia? Do they, are they open about that? They are open about the fact that they are supportive of the Houthi, but they also say they are prepared to that they don't expect the Houthi to be running the government of Yemen. They don't expect anything except a representative uh, <clears throat> process in which they're represented as a minority, but they're able to be safely part of governance. So, in effect, uh, I think there <clears throat> could be a capacity to have a, a, a process in place that could resolve this. In fact, the negotiations that took place in Kuwait uh, – came close to a resolution, and when I went to Oman and met with the Houthi and others, we got them to agree to go back to that discussion and be prepared to accept the outlines of a peace process that we put on the table. I regret to say that it was uh, Hadi, President Hadi, uh, who balked and refused to go forward with what he had previously agreed to in Kuwait. No, I, I really hope as you continue to talk with Zarif or with the Sultan of Oman, who's clearly a good friend of yours, that you that this has just got to stop. I, it, to me, it's as bad as they're cheating on, on the JCPOA or sponsoring a terrorist attack on the expats in Paris. They're, they're sending sophisticated weaponry that can kill a lot of people in these missiles that the Houthis are there. And Zarif and the Sultan, they've just got to stop that. Do you agree, Secretary? Yeah, we've absolutely. And we've made it very, very clear to them, and the issue has been raised with the Omanis and others. I think there are ways to get at that, but you're going to, again, have to engage. Uh, but I made it crystal clear that that's unacceptable. In fact, Hugh, it's not well known, but we kept in place in the, in the JCPOA uh, negotiations we kept the sanctions in place for human rights. We kept the sanctions in place for the missile, trans missile testing. We kept sanctions in place against their transfer of weapons in Yemen. And we raised those sanctions during, even during the time we were negotiating the JCPOA. So we never relented with respect to accountability on those issues. But we believed that having an Iran that didn't have a nuclear weapon or a pathway to a nuclear weapon was a better place to be in negotiating on those other issues. And our theory of the case was you get JCPOA in place, you prove that you're going to enforce it as you agreed to, and then you put all those other issues on the table. So from my point of view, I think President Trump would have been much better advised to have kept the JCPOA which would have kept China, Russia, France, Germany, and Britain together with you united. So you keep it in place and you say to the Iranians, hey, guys, we've told you you've got to stop these other things. I'm going to give you two years or a year or whatever. We're willing to negotiate on these other things. But if you, don't, if you haven't done it by then, I'm out of this agreement. 
And that way you have China, Russia, these other countries with you in the effort to leverage this different behavior from Iran, rather than unilaterally pulling out and isolating yourself and making it much more difficult to sit down with any Iranian. Well, now, uh, when you when you get done talking to Zarif in, in Norway or Munich, do you call up Pompeo and talk with him about this sort of stuff? And, well, and those how conversations to... took place before Pompeo became Secretary of State, and I haven't seen him since then. But uh, I did have a fairly long conversation with Secretary Pompeo before the Iran decision was made. And I made the argument that I just made to you. I made it very clearly, and it was clear that he... Uh, disagreed with that approach, or President Trump disagreed, I don't know which, but the bottom line is that is not the, the approach they took. All right, let me go through my questions about the agreement. I was a big opponent of the JCPOA, and, and you know, candidly, I, I'm glad we got out of it. But if they had delivered, for example, Siamak Namazi, I believe they promised that to you, did they not, that they were going to release him and he's still in a jail in Iran? They promised they would make their best efforts to get him out because Jabad Zarif and the foreign ministry doesn't control that. It's controlled by the interior ministry, and they're at odds. The hardliners, the IRGC and others, are the hardliners in Iran. And what I think the decision to get out fails to understand is there's this fight going on in Iran itself for the future of the country. Uh, and there are you, you've seen people marching. You've seen people who have a different point of view trying to express it. And, and I think what, 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 what getting out does is it makes it harder for President Rouhani and those who are trying to move in a more uh, reasonable, moderate direction, makes it harder for them to be able to carry the day. Now, you know, Secretary Kerry, when I read uh, Every Day is Extra, I kept writing down on my notes, I just don't believe that that division exists because if they won't deliver, if they can't deliver the promises they make to you, and the best you can get on inspections is a 24-day notice for their military base, they're always going to cheat. Now, persuade well, me why I'm not right about that, that they're all, that, that's the nature of a religious mafia running that country. We cannot trust them. Well, I'm not, well, nothing is based on trust. That's the point. I agree with you. We, it's not an issue of trust, and nor would I. You know, I have never suggested. I, I buy into the Reagan, uh, you know, maxim, you know, trust but verify. But in this case, we said don't trust but verify. Uh, nothing is based on trust. It is based on your access. Now, 24 days is irrelevant to what's happening with nuclear, because nuclear, you can't wipe it away. You know, you, you, it, it lasts for a thousand years. We have the capacity to detect. And, and, and the fact is they're not going to be able to clean something up in that period of time, number one. Number two, what happens is the 24 days are the date not by which you get in to inspect, but by which the sanctions, every single one of them, come back automatically. So if we set up a structure in this agreement where if we suspected that some facility was being used, in other words, if Israel came to us or someone came to us and said, we, we've got information that says this building is now being used for illicit activities to break out, we could say, we want to inspect that building. And if they haven't, after those days, allowed us to get in there in the span of time, which we could get in in four days, ten days, whatever it's going to be, all the sanctions come back automatically. And we set up a structure where there, there's no veto by the U.N. Uh, Security Council. Russia, China can't, you know, veto our ability to do that. They're automatically back. So we thought we had an enormous amount of leverage. Moreover, if we are operating on really good intelligence and we know what's happening in that building, Every single military option available to us today would have been available to us then. So, so Secretary, we could bomb the facility, we could do whatever is necessary to guarantee uh, that that we hold them accountable. And finally, you, I'll just say to you, uh, the fact is that when we started our negotiations, the breakout time to a nuclear weapon was about two months. Because of what we put in place, the breakout time is more than a year. So we have plenty of time to be able to make the decision that we need to make. And we thought that made Israel safer, made the region safer, made the world safer.
Oh, you know, I, one of my very dearest friends is a guy named Dan Poneman and uh, my college roommate. And so I've spent hundreds of hours debating this with him. And he tells me if Ernie Monit says it works, it works. And I read with great interest how you brought in the Secretary of Energy to tell you it works. But I got to tell you, I read constantly about this. And just recently, Ali Akbar Valyati, who's a, a senior advisor to the Supreme Leader yes. Khamenei, said nobody is allowed to visit Iran's military sites. Period. End of story. Well, Isn't he's that a hardliner? That's correct. And if that's the way, it, and if that played out that way, they're going to have a very ugly outcome. And all of us would have supported enforcing this to the to the nth degree. And that's why I said uh, you, that is not what the agreement states. Now, Veliati may say that. I don't know if that's for public consumption. But if Iran, in effect, blocked us under this agreement from a legitimate inspection of a military facility or whatever facility we deem, which is what is in the what's called additional protocol, I would support doing what we have to do to enforce the agreement. Uh, Secretary Kerry, that's a red line. And, and I believe you, but I just never believed President Obama after the first red line wasn't enforced. You just yeah, laid down it, a red line, but why would we that. believe it? And I know that the red line cost the administration and the president dearly, but uh, i just say this, my friend. The fact is that that red line, uh, he never backed off the, the notion of bombing, but all of the declared weapons got taken out, and Congress had not passed what he asked them to do, which was give the authority to do it, but he never said he wouldn't do it. Uh, the fact is that, uh, but there was a mythology that grew up that he was going to Congress in order not to do it, and I don't think that's accurate, and it's just... Where things came out in the belief system, and and that belief system gained a certain life of its own in the region and elsewhere. To this Let, day. Let's stay on that for a second. I know I've got you for ten more minutes, but I want yeah, to I've got tell to run you. In a few right. here. There was a uh, exchange at the Aspen Security Forum where I was this summer. Ali Shahabi of the Arabia Foundation stood up and told Tony Blinken that the Iranians seized our sailors and they would never do that under President Trump, but they dared do it under President Obama because we had lost the respect and fear of the Iranians. I think it goes back to the red line. What would you say to Ali Shahabi uh, about that incident? Well, I would say never underestimate what, don't miscalculate what President Obama would be willing to do, because President Obama put his presidency on the line to send a helicopter into Pakistan, into another country, uh, in order to go after Osama bin Laden. And he proved that he was willing to risk his whole presidency. Carter lost the presidency partly because of Desert One, in which they tried a rescue mission and it failed, and it, and it cost him dearly, and I think everybody would agree on that. President Obama didn't hesitate to go after uh, and to take the risks when, when he deemed it necessary. And I saw him make decisions like that. We did a number of rescue operations for hostages, which the world never really heard about, uh, in which uh, American forces were sent in to Syria in, in the helicopter missions uh, and unfortunately came up with, uh, I write about one of them, the, the dry hole, uh, and, and it, 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 the people weren't there anymore. But the president didn't hesitate to do things when he thought the risk was uh, important and the stakes were something that you'd get a return on it. And I, I think that uh, I think it'd be a mistake to make the judgment that, the fellow made out in Aspen. Is it a mistake to conclude when we gave a billion seven in small bills and four hostages appear that we paid for those hostages and made it more difficult to get hostages out anywhere? Well, I don't, you know, it's it's regrettable that that I guess the, the, co the, the coincidence of it at the same time, but those were separate negotiations. They were oh, separate you write that. Tracks. You write that. Yeah. And not only were they separate tracks, but we were paying, the American taxpayer was paying uh, billions in, in, in terms of interest that was accruing uh, on uh, this particular money. And the money was a completely separate uh, component. It was not a payment for. But as I, as I write, and there, there, there's more detail necessary to lay it out, and, and it, it's, uh, it's verifiable, there was... Uh, a need to carry that out in the way it was, because if it didn't happen that way, uh, it would have been it would have been very difficult to get the hostages um, separate from 
the return of the money in a way that uh, you know didn't somehow wind up creating a linkage. And I remember there was a very careful choreography in the whole thing because we didn't want to wind up with you know a repayment before that, and then you don't get your hostages back. So the coordination of this just fell out in a way that that is unfortunate. But they were completely separate negotiations, and one had nothing to do with the other. My very last question, Senator Kerry. I, Secretary Kerry, I, after so many years of calling you Senator Kerry, I, I, I Sorry, follow you. First title, or we used to be. <laughs> first time I have spoken to you in all of my years of broadcast. I've been doing this since 1989. National syndicated show since 2000. Because Democrats don't talk to conservative talk show hosts. Secretary Clinton said she regrets not talking to me during the campaign. Do you think? What's your advice to people for running for president? Should they go in harm's way and talk to? I mean, this has been a great conversation. I could talk to you for five hours about this book. Well, I don't do you, think. I don't think. I'm not, of course, I think people should. I mean, I don't. Uh, I don't not talk to a conservative. I have a lot of conservative friends, and I think that exchange is healthy. I'd rather have the conversation because I think that there's more to agree on than disagree on. And usually you can find a way to understand somebody's point of view so that you see that you know it's not crazy, it's not off the wall. They're just different ways of seeing certain things and sometimes similar ways of getting things done. And so your encouragement to presidential candidates is to go in harm's way and go on conservative well, I don't talk consider it harm's way. I mean, if you have a rational, if you, you know, if you've thought through why you believe something and you actually believe it, you ought to be able to defend it. You ought exactly. to talk about the position. Exactly. Well, I appreciate your time. You've been very generous. Every day is extra is a must read. And for me, it's a walk through Massachusetts political history that I shared with you for a little while. And I appreciate the book and I appreciate the time you've given me, Secretary. Well, I've appreciated the conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Thank you.